Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. It's not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. What's up, my friends? My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. I just sat down with Dr. Kendra Carr. Kendra is a marine ecologist, and she works all over the world in some wild places, places like Cuba, Indonesia, Myanmar, and she does science. She works with everyone from government officials to local fishermen to try and figure out ways that they can develop more sustainable fisheries. How a place like Indonesia that is growing so much can have fish for generations to come. Um, What some of the difficulties are that come along with working in a place like Indonesia. Um, we, We dive deep. We talked a lot about Cuba in this episode. I learned a lot about Cuba in this episode. That was that was super cool. It, it turns out that because of the embargo that was put on Cuba, largely, they have much more poli- prolific fisheries than a lot of its neighboring countries because they haven't had international vessels coming through taking all their fish like a lot of these countries have. And that because of currents... Cuba is a very important uh, country for fish to be able to move into other countries. Some of the fish that we catch offshore of the United States uh, came from Cuba. It's fascinating to listen uh, or to, to think about that. You know, fish don't have walls, they are just cruising around in the ocean and. Kendra understands a lot more about fisheries than I do. Um, so, I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you like this podcast, give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. Reach out to me on social media and say, Hey, get this guy on. Get this gal on. I want to hear them talk to you. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Kendra Carr. When you're going on these trips, do you ever have a chance to hang with any of these fishermen? Yes, not not in Indonesia per se right now, no. um, but in other regions of the world, definitely um, in Cuba, in Belize, um, Mexico, yeah. definitely interact a lot with with people on the ground and get on get not only on the water. A big part of what I do is getting on the water, but getting underwater because um, that's one of my my specialties is looking at what's underwater and and observing, and then using that information to understand where we can go in the future. Um, right. But, bring, bring me into one of these um, men or women's days, day in the life of an Indonesian fisherman or gosh. Cuban fisherman or someone who you've met. Yeah, definitely. Well, we can talk about Cuba fishermen because um, the ones I, I know a little bit more like intimately spend more, more time with and just know their stories a little bit better. And there's a whole bunch of fishermen, different types of fishing activities from tuna fishermen or, or jacks and more offshore to individuals that might just be going out daily. <clears throat> uh, one, uh, tuna fishermen will go out for weeks at a time. You'll have 
maybe 10 fishermen on a boat um, and the boat's not even 30 feet. There's maybe a hatch covered. So you're in really harsh sun conditions and they're out for weeks on a boat with only the food they have on hand. And they're just going looking, looking for, for fish to fish. And so one of the things they do is, um, it's actually quite wonderful. Uh, so I work on a lot of shark management in, in Cuba is that they look for sharks. They follow the sharks because the sharks are the ones that are actually eating the tuna. And so I've, we've actually had tuna fishermen that have come up to us and, and said, wow, I'm on, a, I'm on the water as well. I'm on a boat doing research. They come up, they said, we want to protect the sharks. We understand that the sharks have been disappearing and this is not a good thing. And basically what we want to do is, is, is make sure that they're conserved. Like we will do anything. We'll, we'll report what we see people catching. We'll help man, like we'll help start recording if you guys want us to, to, you know, to identify what's coming on the water. But the point is, is we need the sharks. The sharks show us where the fish are because that's where the, that's where um, they're hunting the fish. And so the, we have fish. The sharks are their fish finder. Exactly. Yeah. And so you, you have fishermen on the water that are like saying, let's make sure that this keystone predator, uh, keystone means that it, you know, it's, it's the top of the pillar. It helps maintain everything that it's in the water. Cause once you have that, not only is it their fish finder, which is I think a great analogy, but also helps maintain the health of the entire ecosystem that supports their fish. If you don't have sharks, um, basically you have a whole breakdown of all the other fish that follow down below it. Sharks help maintain what's in the water. Why? How does that actually work? Yeah. So, so here's a really simple, simple scenario. And this is, it, it gets more complex than this. So this is a coral reef ecosystem. So when we all think of corals, we think of really healthy corals that are beautiful, but then, then there's the other end, a coral reef that's covered in algae. That's not so beautiful, right? If you pick that apart a little bit more, what we know is if you have coral reefs, you have a whole suite of different types of species. You have species that feed on the algae. You have species that eat the, the species that feed on the algae, and that just goes all the way up. And then you have, and basically what that results in is a lot of different types of fish that are bigger and more abundant. If you have a coral reef ecosystem that is covered in algae, you don't have many different types of fish. It breaks down because you're losing those interactions between fish and they're smaller and not abundant. So it's the whole shift of, of what a coral reef looks like. And so that actually travels all the way up to sharks. Sharks maintain, help maintain this cycle. And once you lose those sharks, then the interactions between all the fish as it goes down the trophic levels actually loses, loses, loses its significance. And it's not as what we call the word as resilient. That's your ability to rebound from change, like yeah. whether it's a storm or a tsunami or whatever it is, your ability to rebound from being pushed really hard just completely deteriorates. And so that's and so that's why sharks are really important to maintaining coral reefs. So what were you doing in Cuba? Oh, Cuba, I, I do a lot of different things. Uh, um, I, I mentioned briefly- Are you a spy? <laughs> no, definitely nowhere near that. I actually have a, a government visa to be in Cuba, <laughs> a work visa. So. You're, you're, one of lucky, you're one of the lucky ones that can actually go straight from the U.S. Because yeah. most people, if they want to go to Cuba, they have to fly to another country and then go into Cuba, correct? Definitely, yeah. Okay. And and that's illegal. Just, just clarity. <laughs> so I hear. Okay. From... <laughs> but no, I have a work visa. Um, the Environmental Defense Fund has been working with the Cuban government and guests of not only government, but other partners for over 15 years in the country. And and this is actually pretty amazing. And a lucky. And I feel incredibly lucky to be a small part of the, the work in Cuba because we consider Cuba the crown jewel of the Caribbean. The rest of the Caribbean has been fished heavily as well as all these natural disturbances for, you know, generations. 
But Cuba, because it's been closed, hasn't had this industrial fishing that does shipping out to other countries. So it's, 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 it's back several decades compared to the rest of the Caribbean. And, and where it sits, this is a little nerding out on my, on my side, where it sits, um, because the currents that move around, it feeds the rest of the U.S. area as well as the, the greater Caribbean. It feeds uh, baby corals, fish, and invertebrates. So it's a really important area to make sure that we maintain. And what I mean by maintain is we need to make sure there's still fish in the water, the corals are healthy, the uh, the invertebrates that are fish, like, you know, conch, lobster, all those kinds of things are healthy. Bring me into that, how that cycle actually works. Definitely. So a baby fish is born off the coast of Cuba, and then the currents bring it into U.S. territory? Depending on, so like if you look at, so where Cuba resides, you know, it north to south, the, the north side of the country, especially the northwest, um, there are gyres in the water that will feed fish. And then this has actually been documented, sharks as well as fish. It can feed larval, which are what we call little babies that haven't really become fish yet, fish as we know them and we eat them, the gyres will actually carry those up to the U.S. And this has been documented through like genetics and stuff versus on the south side of the country, southwest, as well as just the whole south of the country that feeds the greater Mesoamerican reef area, the Gulf of Honduras. So it's basically where Cuba sits because it nests itself based on all these gyres in the middle of a whole area of the greater Caribbean, including U.S. waters. It's feeding depending on where, where something is released in the water, whether on the north or the south or the west or the east of the country, it's feeding all of that area. So even though Cuba has had an embargo on it, mm-hmm. it has secretly been exporting fish <laughs> through gyres <laughs> to other countries. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, exporting fish. Um, I've, never, I've never... I know, used... I'm just twisting your words as much as possible. I would never... I would no, never that's... actually use a monetary term <laughs> to describe the fish an ecological been... pattern. The fish sure. have been exporting themselves through ocean currents. Yes, yes, yeah. The fish are spies. The fish... Well, they're exiting Cuba, so... So they're Cubans that are going to other countries to, to spy on other countries? They're Scarface fish. Certainly. Sure. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. <laughs> this is fascinating, though. T- tell me a little bit more about about how important Cuban fisheries are mm-hmm. to other countries. Bring me into that yeah. that entire cycle. Well, I mean, I, I think let's step back and, and big picture how, um, in my personal opinion, um, some of Cuba's fisheries are a role model for how other fisheries, not only in the Caribbean, but in the greater world how they can move forward. Um, and a great example is um, last year, uh, the, the government of Cuba signed off and passed regulations, a national plan of action, the, our little code term is NPOA, um, for sharks. And it's, it's considered right now, I mean, there's other countries in the world that are more developed, you know, New Zealand, the US, those types of countries that have these but this is Cuba, a different type of country that operates in a different way. They plan, they, they, they submitted and the, the government approved, and not only government, the fishermen are involved in this, a national plan of action of how to actually manage and monitor sharks in the country of, of Cuba. This is huge. So this, this happened last year. And so now they're considered a role model for other countries that operate in the same you know, um, governance level as Cuba of how can they move forward. How can they manage their fisheries like this, specifically shark fisheries? Because yeah. we all realize sharks are so important to maintaining the health, 
the baseline health of any ecosystem. I gave a coral reef example, but there are really important in temperate systems as well. Sharks are just extremely important. Um, so a lot of countries were, because we, we are one of the main ways to collaborate with the, the, our partners, which is the government in Cuba, we receive requests all the time from other countries saying, how can we learn about how you move forward with not only the government, but the fishermen. The fishermen are involved in this. They're, they're voicing their opinions. And when I'm not talking about the tuna fishermen, I'm talking about fishermen that fish for sharks. They're the ones that are wanting the change. And so um, we have all types of countries that are coming out and reaching out and saying, how can we, how can we move forward on this? Or if it's not a specific government, it's partners on the ground in another government saying, how, how can we do something like, like what was done in Cuba? Right. So what does that actually look like to create something like, what would you say mm -hmm. is, is an, uh, what was the acronym that you used? NPOA. NPOA. Mm -hmm. What does it stand for again? National Plan of Action. National Plan of Action. Yeah. Bunch of people putting their heads together and saying, hey, how can we not fish out all of our fish? Exactly. And sharks. Yeah. So um, I, I, it really, it, it, it's a simultaneous, what we call bottom up. So fishermen voicing themselves and being engaged as well as a top down government realizing that they need, that they're going to be part of this process and, and them help facilitating that bottom up exercise. Um, there was a lot of, a lot of groundwork, a lot of time spent in communities, um, talking to fishermen, talking to their families, because it's not just the fishermen on, on, on the water, it's the families as well. It's, it's the wives, it's the children, every, hearing everybody's opinion. This, this is, that's, that's how you incentivize change, right? Is you listen to what people want and then you create a behavior change or they're creating their own behavior change because this whole world anything that we that we may not agree upon you know just you and i talking it's because one of our behaviors may not agree with somebody else's behaviors right so it's all about like figuring out how we can collaborate together in order to create some kind of change on the ground and so this was a lot of time spent with people on the ground working going around the country going to fishing villages which include major ports as well as individual vessels and communities talking to people, listening to people. That's, you know, people need to be heard and you need to really take that information and move it forward. So we had a, a, a partners on, on, on the ground just really motivating this, this process throughout the whole country, as well as at the government uh, and partner level, so other partners in the country that operate more on a big picture like the government does, um, figuring out what kind of laws are in place, what kind of laws can be developed um, in order to to really push this change. Is there a lot of distrust from fishermen having outsiders come in and tell them about their fisheries? How was that so, received so with the conversations that I, you were having with them? Definitely. So I think if if so, I wouldn't. I personally try try not to go in and say this is what your fishery looks like because who am I? But I will go and I'll listen to someone. A scientist. Yes, yes. A science. I, I wave my hands all the time when I've been known to like stand up on a stage giving a talk, wave my hands on purpose saying, I do science. Yeah, no, is. you're you're levitating right now, <laughs> exactly. actually. There's yeah. this glow around you. I, <laughs> I feel it. Yeah. Your aura is purple right now. It's amazing. Oh, my goodness gracious. Um, what do these conversations sound like when you go and listen to a Cuban fisherman? Yeah. Um, it could start with something like distrust. You know, there's there has been, there's actually a, a video that someone's, it's been recorded and posted how it started with distrust at the very beginning of our interaction saying, I've been told by so many people this is going on. I don't, but you're not giving me any, any options. So I go in, I don't tell people what's going on. I listen to what they're saying. And then over time, like there's been several times where I've 
maybe not Cuba's the example, but other examples where you go back over and over and over again, and you just keep listening and you just keep listening and then you take what they give you and then you move that forward so that they know that they're being heard. And so in the case of the Cuba example, there's actually a video of people are crying and yelling at each other in a room. This is several communities. And then towards the end of a project, this is like a two-year project, they basically are like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad we all got together. We all heard each other. We all listened to each other. This is our future. We need to keep moving this forward. Like I've, a, a similar situation is I've had a fisherman where basically he told me how much distrust he has and then working with him for two days. At the end of the two days, it was like, I want to save whales now. I wasn't talking about saving whales, but his point is I've been converted. I care about everything that's in the ocean, even something that's not even part of my system. Whales was not part of his system. He's like, I understand why I'm part of the, I'm part of the puzzle and right. how I need to change the way my puzzle piece is fitting in order to make the puzzle one, one piece. So there can be distrust, but it's like you're listening to them right? and you're incorporating that information into work together as you move forward. Okay. And it's not just me. Like I, like I do science. We, there's people that we, that I work with directly as well as indirectly that they're social people, they're social scientists. And we all work together with stakeholders, you know, those people are on the ground to move an idea forward. So a fisherman might tell you or one of your colleagues, you know, I, I live in this small fishing village, you know, uh, over the last 10 years, I've noticed that there are far fewer sharks or there are far fewer tuna coming into this, these areas, and I'm really afraid for my livelihood. Is that usually how these conversations will sound? Eventually. Eventually. Usually, it would be someone like me um, that thinks about like that, that. What you just described was a science thing. Right. right. You totally just described a, a, a pattern observed over time in nature. Okay. Due to human use and maybe natural changes. So someone like me might go in and say... So have you changed where you used to fish? Do you have to go out further? How much further? The fish before, did it fit bigger than a plate? Are you just able to get stuff that's half the size of the plate? Like we, we change terminology so it's not about direct measurements, nothing that's really about science. So this is in a system where there's no information available. Um, and so I'll, we'll be working with you know people that translate on the ground if we don't speak the language because I work in a lot of areas where I don't speak Burmese, I don't speak Bahasa Indonesian, I don't speak those languages, and why would they trust me, right? Um, so we have people on the ground talking to them as we have this 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 interaction. And so through that, then they tell the story. And then from the story that they give us, we can paint a picture and say, and put it on, you know, make it a, a picture, draw it somewhere. Does, it, does this sound right? And if say yes, it'd be like, is this what you see going forward in the future? This picture you just painted, is this what you want in the future? Or do you want it to change? And, and how do you think it can change? And then um, how you think it can change sometimes can be some pointing of fingers. Maybe other communities are fishing too much in our area or something like that. But then you realize that then you have to change, incorporate the other community's information that you've already gotten. And then you can paint a bigger story that says, hey, you guys are all seeing the same thing. It might be bigger than just your neighbors interacting. There might be something that's going on. Uh, and so from there, that's when you start working at lots of different spatial and governance skills to incorporate all the stories so that everybody realizes that they're, they're part of the bigger okay. problem. So then you take these, this body of stories, mm -hmm. you then work with a Cuban NGO or the Cuban government to enforce fishing laws that will 
behoove the fishermen? How does how, I'm, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to take you up the stages because it's confusing yeah. to me, at least, how all of this stuff actually yeah. works. So, so Cuba would be a different scenario. But it's a fascinating scenario yeah. because we don't normally work with Cuba. I wanted to keep digging yeah. into Cuba. Oh, oh, yeah, we can totally keep digging into Cuba. So um, like I said before, Cuba is both a top-down and a bottom-up process um, simultaneously. Obviously, the top-down is, is pretty heavy because of the, the regulations within the country and how the country operates. So that one is a system where um, so you've already heard from the fishermen that they've seen some changes or you know um, based on government um, data. So the government will actually have some data that there have been changes over time. And so what, what we've done in Cuba for the shark specifically project is we've incentivized a data collection scheme throughout the whole country with local partners. And that includes universities. Um, there's the University of Havana has a, a, an amazing marine research facility as well as their SIEC, which is down in, in the southern part of the country, and the government. So with, through their support, a data collection scheme as well as through Moat Marine Lab, which is in Florida, a data collection scheme has been developed through all the major fishing vessels in the country, and we do all these trainings. We've done we've done a couple trainings throughout the country, letting people. It's mostly fishermen, really introducing them to identifying species, because that's a big part of managing fisheries is knowing what's coming out of the water, right? So we do trainings so that not only can they identify species, which can be kind of difficult. Um, we show them what data to actually collect, how big they are, mm-hmm. um, so we can actually understand what's coming on the water because that we that wasn't known before before this project started, and so that's a big part of, of once you understand the size, the number, and the species that are coming in the water, you can actually take that information and and to help identify laws or whether we're talking about a size limit, an abundance limit, creating a total catch, how much can actually come out of the water. That's what that's that's what we call. A management rule um, and how often it can be taken out of the water. That's what we call a harvest control rule, how things are taken out in order to meet some kind of um, preconceived notion of what is sustainable. Um, so once you've identified that number that is sustainable, then you backtrack and you make all these laws at the government level. But first you have to go all the way around the country and understand what fishermen are taking out of the water. And that's the biggest effort. The making the, making the law is is really short-term compared to the effort that it takes to really understand what's coming on the water over time. Finding that number. Yeah. I think a lot of people, myself included, think of words like sustainability. Like you just have this number that is sustainable, but fish are constantly breeding. They're being fished out. They're traveling through currents. It's not this, fish don't follow borders. Exactly. There's no walls for fish. No walls. Yeah. Except dams. But that's a whole nother the, discussion. But, but there's those fish that can go over some of those dams, right? Not the big ones, but... Uh. So what then happened in Cuba that was such a success there? After you had been pulling all this data, bottom up, top down, what came from that? The development of the National Plan of Action. The country itself saying we are going to manage um, sharks as a fishery. It didn't, that didn't exist before. It doesn't exist in most countries in the world that, that fish for sharks. Um, so that actually saying as a country, we are going, we are recognizing that we need to manage the system and do it in a way that we know that is sustainable for not only the sharks fishery, but the art, the ecosystem that the sharks support. Okay. And now is it that you, like if you're a fisherman fishing for sharks, you can only go out and catch so many. It's moving that direction. It, it will take time. I mean, this is just last year, right? Yeah. These, a lot of this, uh, stuff takes 
sometimes decades to develop. But but we're this is Cuba's on a more of an accelerated path. Yeah, because they they know how important uh, this fishery is to the entire country. And other countries surrounding it. In other countries, and, and not only to their shark fisheries, this is really important, but to the other fisheries around the country, because sharks are such an integral part to their coral reef ecosystem. It's fascinating to me that because Cuba has had an embargo on it for the past number of decades, their fishery is in a completely different state than a lot of countries surrounding it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they still have had a lot of fishing, right? Um, but not as much is other countries. Right. They don't have Chinese vessels coming offshore like a lot of African countries do, taking all the fish. Yeah. And so a lot of uh, the fishing that occurs that is managed by the government is, um, there there is fishing for the people, but that's a small part compared to fishing for tourists. A lot of Cubans don't eat fish, to be honest. Uh, It's not part of their, their... their daily staples that the government gives them. That's more like a a beef product and beans and rice and that kind of stuff. But uh, a lot of fish goes to the tourist industry, which is growing dramatically, right? Um, uh, It's grown dramatically in the last, since I've been working in Cuba, it's changed. You used to be able to uh, catch a keb for one fare. Now that fare is like quadrupled. Wow. Hotels are more than double. Like some, we, sometimes we think about just renting houses and, because hotels are so expensive because the tour ever since um, the laws have changed, which we still have an embargo, think things are slowly changing. But ever since, you know, there's that bit in recognition that uh, the U.S. is changing its thought process and its ties. It's opened up tourism in general and there's been an increased interest. Right. Who are the main tourists that come to Cuba? Europe, Europe and Russia. Europe and Russia. Yeah. They can come in. Oh, yeah. No problem. Everybody except for the U.S. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, like if you if you are walking around, if you when I have the time to walk around Old Havana, I usually I go and I'm on a boat or I'm in meetings all the time. Um, I hear rarely do I hear English. I hear a lot of Russian. I've been on buses across the country full of Russian tourists. I hear a lot of you know Italian, French, some some. Uh, like British English, but not American English. It's like rare. It's very rare to actually see an American. At least it has been over time. Like yeah. previously, I'm sure if I went now, I could probably spot. Was it brethren. was it historic at all that the Cuban government was working with? Uh, and is is the Environmental Defense or sorry, it's an American? Yes, that's an American organization. It is. It, Your it, organization is an. American it took a lot. So I wasn't involved in this, but um, some of my colleagues. Were involved in this. It took years of building trust. It, first, EDF was invited to a meeting. Uh, I think it was a Mark Cuba meeting, which is like a science meet and greet that yeah. occurs in Cuba that talk about the the state of the science. And from there, it took many years of building trust before. I mean, EDF could step foot in the country, but yeah. they weren't engaged in, in any process. And so, I mean, we're easily, easily five six years of building trust before EDF got involved in, in lots of different projects. Right. And, and since then, EDF has been involved in um, developing, uh, not develop, I will say advising and, and help facilitate the process of developing a rather substantial network of marine protected areas around the country. It's one of the, in my opinion, one of the best designed because it's... Um, around Cuba. Around Cuba. Um, a lot of times, I w- I'll say sometimes, when MPAs, marine protected areas, are designed, they're they're um, low hanging fruit. Right. Let's, let's protect this area because 
because maybe it's what it's available to protect and we're not going to hurt anybody's feelings. Right. Or that could be one scenario. I'm not saying that's always the scenario. But Cuba was actually a, a process uh, of going around and identifying areas that are really important, um, including nursery ha- habitats. That's where babies come from for all types of species, uh, really well-developed and, and, and healthy coral reef systems. You know, they, so together, scientists yeah. and the government and, and EDF was part of this really helped to develop this network of marine protected areas. Do you think that one of the main solutions uh, moving forward with fisheries is globally is to create marine protected areas? Is that what has Um, been seen to have the greatest impact? Because I am familiar with spillover effect where you'll Mm -hmm. create an area like we have in the Monterey Bay where no one can fish anything. Those fisheries are then super productive and the fish move with currents into other areas and create a net benefit for everyone. Yeah. Does that seem like, I mean, and, and you don't need to have a yes or no answer on this at all. I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but do marine protected areas seem like the best way to go for countries moving forward? Um, I think I think that's a great question and I think it's, it, it is a solution. So one of the things that um, I work with, with the organization I work with, is what we, um, I'm going to loosely call what we call rights-based management. And what rights-based management, or people say RBM, or community-based management, is, is you are making the users, so the fishermen, they're the stewards of the resources. And so what you've just identified, a system that has a an, marine an protected area associated with an area that can be fished, is one option for rights-based management. And this this won't this can't will not work everywhere because there's different types of fisheries, like a tuna fishery that operates across several EEZs. But, but, uh, what, what, what's an EEZ? Come on, <laughs> with acronyms. So, economic I'm going to make you take a shot every time <laughs> you use an acronym that I don't understand. Uh, economic ex- exclusive zones. That's country zones. Like, you know, in the U.S., so we have our state waters, and then we have off of our state waters, we have like the national waters, our economic exclusive zone. So this is where we're supposed to be fishing and people aren't supposed to be crossing these borders. But fish don't work that way. Tunas cross borders all the time. You've already identified that earlier with the larval dispersal that we talked about. So this this idea of using a marine protected area to create spillover, create a really healthy environment for fish not only to grow in, but to maybe spill over into another area that can be fished is an idea that might work at certain scales and with certain types of governance systems and certain certain types of interests. So I think it's an option. Um, you know, the example that I'm thinking of where you have uh, communities that might have a really strong leader, maybe like in Fiji, where you have a king system, you know, you basically have a, or, or you have an elder that's really important, someone that c- can really help enforce the non-fishing in the marine protect area. Because that's the problem right now, is a lot of marine protected areas are what we call paper parks. Because who's who's gonna manage, you know, you know, islands thousands of miles off water where there's nobody living on them? Who's right. gonna enforce that marine protected area? Like, where, where's the money coming from? Where's the interest coming from? So I think it, it's an option, like you, like how the way that I'm describing it, of associating a, a, the, you know, the benefits of a marine protected area to a user. Gotcha. That I mean, that seems like it's one of the main problems. If you look at the marine protected area in the Monterey Bay, that's easy because it's right offshore and we have a ton of money to, or, I mean, I don't know, a ton of money, but we have enough money for people to actually be monitoring it. But with a lot of these countries where you don't have that funding, 
what's the solution to that? Is it that it it turns into that it's just not cool? Like in you know, around town, it's just not cool to leave trash on the beach. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, someone will yell at you. Is that the same thing with the fishery that it needs to be culturally um, identified with and taken on? Yeah, I think I think you're hitting part of it. Um, and it's not that it's just not cool. It's that we're 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 going to incentivize your change in behavior, and it may be part of it might be a little bit of monetary incentive incentivizing, like, um, but it also might be you realize that we're talking about your future. As you know, I know you. Can, a lot of fishermen are really worried about what's happening today, and that totally understandable. You know, like a lot of people are just making it by, but you have to realize that it's also about tomorrow and the day after next. Um, so, one example is some of the work that we've been doing in Belize. So, EDF has been engaged in Belize for for many years. In about, I guess maybe like four years ago at this point, the country of Belize, so the government said, "Hey, we realize that." We might there might be some other management options out there, and the idea of incorporating some some type of rights based management that that sets how much should come out of the water from different spatial areas was, was an option that right. we were thinking about, and so we got engaged and um, started working with the conch and lobster fishery, and through a lot of science. So science really led led a lot of this um, that was going forward, and and I was part of that team where we would work with the government and we would work with pilot sites. One in, in one in the south of the country, one like near the capital of Belize, um, and these were areas that had MPAs associated with areas that you can't fish, and so we were monitoring those over time and showing how if you minimize some of the fishing activities and show the benefits of the MPAs or the potential benefits of the MPAs, then the fishermen could could reap the benefits, and so the fishermen were actually seeing some change. Right. And that word of mouth spread, and now it's a law through the whole country. Fishermen voted for this. Where there's this a whole network of what we call managed access areas, which is exactly the scenario we talked about, where you have a fishing zone associated with no take area, and the fishermen are the ones that are maintaining the no take areas. Right. So that's the entire country of Belize now. Yeah, that's cool. That's super cool. When we talk about these conversations, obviously the fishermen are the ones who are being impacted most either way mm-hmm. and are going to benefit most mm-hmm. from it. You're not doing this work so that you can go get an, an extra lobster no it's actually for the fishermen it is for the fishermen it's yeah. very important to me i mean i definitely care about how pretty it is when i'm underwater and and what's under there but when it comes down to it like i really care about the people that's why i, I work for an ngo an environmental ngo that also thinks about social injustice it's, it's it's a huge thing for me um let's dive into the social injustice aspect a little bit because i think that a lot of people just think about the fish mm-hmm Oh, there's less fish, there's more fish, but don't really take into account the living conditions of the fishermen. Mm-hmm. Bring me into that world. Well, I, I think it it varies globally and uh, how much detail of, of what I've seen, um, it, it varies. Um, in, in the country of Belize, you have fishermen that, you know, for the most part, they, they might have cell phones, you know, but they spend a lot of time on water, uh, free diving um, for 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 conch um, and lobster. Because there there are some, there was some, and now that this is modified even more, regulations that set how a fisherman can fish. It it varies by species. Um, but you have a lot of fishermen, especially older fishermen, that you know just 
they're working into their 50s, 60s. They just, they're not young. They don't have the, they're not in the same condition they were when they're younger. So they're getting less out of the water. And a lot of time this stuff, all, everything they get on the boat, so they spend a lot of time in the water. We're talking about harsh conditions. There's no shades over you when you're on the boat. You're on the water eight plus hours a day, you know, in, let's face it, that part of the world, closer you get to the equator, it's pretty rough being on the water that long. I've done it. It's, 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 it's pretty much, it's, yeah. it takes a lot out of you. They have minimal SPF, Zinca yeah. sunscreen. Oh, they don't wear that. Nah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no gringo cream. Nothing. No, nothing like that. They might have a hat that has holes in it everywhere. So not only are they working in what we consider, I mean, based on our, our experience in our life, and I think both of us have had more time, what we'll call in the field, where whether it's for fun or for, for some type of work, we're we put ourselves in the conditions that most Americans probably wouldn't encounter. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, they're out on the vessel all day. I mean, it sounds great on a boat all day, free diving, you know, sounds, sounds pretty idyllic to me right now. It sounds like vacation, but it's not, they're out there all the time. They're out there every single day and they take that and they get some money really minimal compared to what we consider a lobster worth. They take it to a processing plant, a co-op that gives them some portion of what, they just spent all they do and they do that day in day out they actually most of the time don't eat anything they fish they they go for chicken because they're just like i can't live in this world i want to live in a different world let's go for something that that has nothing to do with my world something that's considered more expensive or maybe not even expensive just um so not only on these really rough conditions we're talking about a region of the world where let's face it there's a lot of drug trafficking so people will live on islands go back and forth from an island to their fishing zone interacting with drug traffickers. I mean, that's a pretty dangerous world to live in. Um, a lot of places that I work that are, you know, anywhere near either the Gulf of California or the, or the Gulf of Mexico, there's a lot of interaction with drug traffickers and, and you're putting your life at risk and let alone even being convinced to go to that side to help subsidize your livelihood. That's, right. that's pretty gnarly, gnarly world. Um, and that, I mean, and that's just in the world that we're more familiar with in other regions of the world. Um, you know, there's human rights conditions that are really prevalent. We're talking about human trafficking, um, which, you know, you can, you can talk to families and hear about children that were sold, children that were taken. Uh, and these are fishing villages because they interact so closely to the world of human trafficking, especially in Asia Pacific, that it's a daily part of their life to think about what's going to happen next um, to their children. Do you know Ian Urbina is the New York Times writer? Mm -hmm. And he did that series called The Outlaw Ocean based on human trafficking within the fishing world, where people would be taken from villages out onto fishing boats and then either for years at a time Mm -hmm. or told that they would be paid and then dropped off and not paid. Do you know much about this world? I've seen it. You've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it earlier this year. Um, and I've seen, okay, let me clarify that. I've, I've seen families that have been impacted by this world and they told me their stories. Uh, this is permanently in the Southern part of, of Myanmar, which is at that time, um, it hadn't gone through the complete transition uh, of politics. It was actually an ungoverned state at that time. Um, the government was still pretty, uh, involved, um, towards the end of my second trip there is when the new president was actually put into office. So my first trip there, there was no one really in office at that time. But um, for I've been, interacted with many families living 
on small islands or living in the southern part of the country that have told me stories of uh, from both sides. One, either land grabbing from other countries that border Myanmar and taking away land from them or having their children taken. And, and, and let's face it, uh, people are taken on fishing vessels for lots of reasons to be a worker of either they're processing fish or a sex slave. So there's men, there's girls and boys that are that are disappearing from these villages, and we're talking about young children. Um, or then there's also the issue of young children being transitioned to other parts of the country to get paid a living wage to help process. And so you have children that are five, six, processing, you know, let's say crabs in a crab processor plant that are barely making any money, and that money may not even be going back to the family that the family was pro promised an income for. So I've heard stories from these families that are directly impacted. And, and I mean, we're talking about places, they don't have, they don't even have generators to have electricity. You know, they have no plumbing. They will go to the bathroom outside and wait for the tide to take it out. I mean, and so those are the conditions these people are living in. So when someone promises them some money or they sell a child in order to support the rest of the family, they're doing it not be because they're desperate and it, it's 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 a very eye-opening experience to in interact with these people. Is any of this fish that is um, being caught under these conditions being sold to us? You know, the supply chain is a very convoluted thing. Um, there are organizations, um, uh, EDF is involved in it, as well as a local group called Fishwise helps understand the supply chain. Um, and so there's actually been some work that has identified in Thailand who not to buy products from. And that, that the work that's been done by like groups like Fishwise and EDF and, and I, there's a whole list of partners. Right. I just, I, I'm not, cause I don't work on supply chain. Um, but there's a whole list of people that are really engaged at this at a national level right. organizations. They are starting to identify who these gross abusers are. I'm gonna use that, that term, which may not be the most accurate term, who they are. And saying, "Hey, let's not make let's make sure that doesn't come into the U.S." Right, but I'm sure it's really hard because a bunch of fish or crab mm -hmm. comes to port, that is then resold to another distributor in another country. In another country, and that's processed and distributed to another country. Its supply chain is 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 really complex. Right, you can't say, "Oh, this fish speaks Spanish; it's coming from this country." Exactly. Yeah, and even if it did, who's to say like how it was caught? Right. Wow, crazy. Yeah. This is blood diamond shit. People have no idea about this kind of stuff. I mean, it's not just, I mean, it's not just in the fishing world. I have to be really clear. I mean, yeah. it's, even jade, like if you wanted to buy jade or gold, all kinds of products and resources that are coming out of this world have different markets. Right. And they have different, different actions creating really complex supply chains. So it's just... Right. I work in the fisheries world, so I just happen to know a little bit, just a teeny bit of supply chain compared to other people. Right. We have all types of materials coming from all over the world, but certain ones, like diamonds, have gotten a lot more media play in the last few years. It seems like very few people know about the human rights abuses associated with their canned tuna that they buy at Safeway. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And and, and so there is a whole... A, a whole suite of organizations that this is what they do to be honest like they are trying to understand supply chain and saying putting a big x over saying hey if it comes from this distributor in this country 
which sometimes sometimes it's easier just to go back one or two steps. If it comes from here, that's a no. Okay. Because you're gonna you're gonna have these gross violations, whether whether it's like you know child labor. I consider that a gross violation. Whatever type of labor it is, child labor, especially children have been kidnapped or sold into it. That that should be something that we should not support. Yeah. What are some of the best organizations doing work around that? Well, I mean, there's the, just the one that I know most readily because I've interacted with them recently on on um, human rights issues. Uh, Fishwise. Okay. Um, uh, they have a whole um, they have a whole program that's focused on on understanding human rights issues, and I'm more than happy to hook you up with some people that work on that because I think it it needs more public play. No, it's fascinating um, and disgusting and so underexposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we're, and it's so, it's one of those things. Cause like, I, I don't, I'm sure you're the same way I go to the ocean and it's about like happy times. The ocean is a place for me. It's where I center myself. Right. It's where like, I find who I am. I'm going to be all like holistic right now. Right. Right. But it's, it's who it's the core of who I am. And to realize that it could be so opposite, something associated with it could be so opposite. is just like, it just kind of takes a little piece of that away. Yeah. hundred percent. What are some of the biggest successes that you've seen um, over the years of doing your work? That's a that's a great thing. Well, I mean, I, I've already mentioned um, two examples. One is the whole country of Belize supported from the national government level, um, incorporating a new management system, and this is what we call Manage Access, where it's fishermen that are managing their resources from the ground up. Um, that was a huge success. Uh, the National Plan of Action in Cuba is an amazing success to have the government and the fishermen support managing an entire fishery, as well as in the c- country of Cuba, I've been involved in managing single species, uh, specifically the bihaiba, which is the lane snapper. It's a, a type of snapper. and uh, now has um, an allowable catch in the country and size limits, which is huge. I mean, Cuba's a... Cuba, in my, in my opinion, is is really high up on, on how to manage their fisheries. They already had a really great uh, lobster management plan. I, I work with one of the main scientists, Rafael Buga, and they, I mean, they've they've had a great monitoring system and, and management system in place for years, which which he's um, been a big a part of it. Him and Maria Stella. Um, other big successes have been um, really increasing the awareness. Uh, so. One of the things I work in is what we call data-limited science. So some of the countries I've identified, Indonesia, Myanmar, it's a great example. There's no information on the ground. We don't know what's come come out of uh, the water at all. And if you think about the U.S., we have millions upon millions of dollars spent regionally every single year to know what's coming out of the water. So I work in what we call data-limited or really data-non-existent. And one of the big successes, I think, is the greater world realizing that this is going on, that there is no data and scientists coming together um, to really identify or create new ways to monitor what's coming out of the water. So that's one of the things I do is develop new methodologies to understand what's coming out of the water and right. how to take that that information to management. You know, how to, there's lots of different ways they can get to management. So that's huge is realizing that data limited scenarios are real. Yeah. Yeah, even in 2016, you yep. go to the ground and there just aren't those numbers on how many fish there are. Yeah. That's fascinating. Is the Environmental Defense Fund um, funded by the U.S. government? Is that no, where you, no. Where are you funded? Uh, 
it there's so an NGO is a, is a non-governmental organization and yeah. it doesn't take money necessarily as a greater whole from uh, the U.S. government. Uh, we might apply for grants here and there that we feel like our work can benefit from, but um, you know, uh, larger uh, donors give funds. You know, you have the MacArthur, MacArthur Foundation might be one. Okay. Um, you know, there's there's lots of donors that are foundations out there that give money in order to support some type of research or some type of environmental cause or social cause. Right. The whole, there's lots of them. Okay. And that doesn't matter that you're do that you do work globally. Does most of your funding come from within the United States or is that Um, also global? It's global. So there's these foundations um, that exist globally. Um, And depending on where I'm working, there are U S foundations that fund work externally to the U.S. Yeah. There's also international foundations that will only fund to specific countries international. And it may not be the country they reside in. It might be a, a foundation in Switzerland that only cares about Indonesia. Yeah. It seems like, uh, I don't know, with Environmental Defense Fund, such a big organization. Well, Environment... it's, really, it's really small. We just work globally. They're okay. Really... Maybe, yeah. Maybe, yeah. It just maybe <laughs> seems like a big official Well, there's name. only like 500 of us total, okay. but 100 in the oceans program. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, so that's not that big for no. <laughs> working globally on yeah. fisheries yeah. Um, in countries around the world. It seems to me like one big issue within the environmental um, within environmental NGOs um, issues that they face is lack of funding. Um, I don't know about your organization, but it seems like everyone is is making their work happen from shoestring budgets. Do you think that there is a better um, funding model moving forward so that organizations like EDF can have consistent funding? It just seems kind of crazy to me a little bit that you rely on generous rich people to keep our fisheries intact Mm. globally. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to phrase it. And and it could be I'm coming from a world, my whole dissertation was, I didn't pay a cent to do to do my dissertation. It was funded by me writing grants every single year. So I'm just kind of, I don't have to write the grants anymore. Someone else, we have development people that are really good at doing that. But I, so I understand how this world works. I understand that you are just getting by. And, and right now we operate in, in a situation where, you know, Obviously, I care about getting paid, right? It's at least, you know, that, that, that's part of it. But I operate in a world where I'm, I lend my time, my extra time, which is minimal because <laughs> I'm lending my extra time to lots of different people where I'm not funded to work on projects. That's because I care about it. And so I work with a lot of people. And I think a lot of environmental NGOs are like this, where just as long as we get our, we get the baseline of like those of us that are trying to get work done, we get our baseline funding. We are constantly lending our time in order to to help somebody else out because we care about it. So that's like a bigger picture. Is is there a better scenario? I, you know, I don't I don't necessarily work in the, the development world. I mean, I think it'd be great if at some international organization level. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying this is who would do it, but you know, you know, something like IUCN. You know. Or FAO, the you know, I don't food know. agriculture. I don't know either of those acronyms. <laughs> so basically, I, so the so the idea is that some larger international level um, organizations that help develop regulations or make suggestions of how countries should operate for resource use or human issues, they provide international guidance 
you know, and all these countries buy into their international guidance. If some organization at that level, I don't know what the right one would be, can help create bigger pots of funding that is distributed out to localized first. I mean, local efforts really need to be funded heavily. Right. And and then that moves up in, in scale to more of these international NGOs, you know, that I, like I work for. So if there's more of a resource pool that maybe all these countries could put into and maybe the countries put into based on their gross gross national product development or where they stand on that, you know, right. at that financial level. That could be a scenario, but besides that, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't work in the world of development and, yeah. and finding funding so much. It's um, it's crazy to me though that something like fishing, that's such an economic driver, isn't valued more by governments. It's, I mean, it behooves them to fund uh, projects that will make ensure that there is fish in their waters for generations to come. It, it does, but you have to remember that a lot of these, a lot of these countries, even. Potentially, I'm not going to say all, but potentially they are operating on, it's about today. And and there's a whole bunch of reasons that that could be there. It could be because there's corruption. You know, I'm not saying any specific countries, but in, in you know, government levels. Right. It could be that there's corruption. It could be that that corruption is really incentivized by big industrial markets that are paying them to, to not manage right. their fisheries. And so that exists globally. Um, those types of scenarios. And so that really de-incentivized any one country getting involved when another country is going to maybe benefit right. from them getting involved, but they're going to lose out right. in the short and long term. If you're a, a politician of one of these small developing countries and I am uh, an international Chinese fishing company or whatever, and I come in and say, hey, we would like to fish your waters off of um, you know, Madagascar or something like that, right? And I'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars to let us do this or something like that that seems like a it, massive amount of money to you and to your family yeah yeah i mean that's just a potential scenario i'm not saying right it's, it, it's happening at all i mean other scenarios you can think well of i mean it is happening we I, I understand if you don't want to name names of countries right now but it obviously is happening otherwise we wouldn't have these big issues right yeah well i mean uh, something a little bit simpler than that is like a lot of um, even regional fisheries, maybe even up to the national level, they are trying to get by day to day. Our concept of how our our country operates and our experiences in our country is drastically different than the vast majority of the world. There are countries that operate on a let's get by today basis. And so it's really hard to get out of that mind frame. They live in this, this scarcity and it's scarcity of the resource to think about the future. They don't They don't have the time and the energy or the capacity because they're so focused on what they're doing right in the moment because they are struggling to survive. Mm-hmm. And that's a very real scenario around the world, um, even at governmental levels. People are having a really hard time making it day to day. I mean, in our country, I wasn't here during the election, but I felt the pain and the scarcity in my own ability to think as I watched that unfold um, in, in real time. And that was just our election and we don't even know what's happening. These, these are people that are dealing with wars. They're dealing with really gross violations of human rights on a daily basis that that takes over their thought process and managing a resource use is not a priority, right? Um, so that's another scenario that, that pretty much is, is, is happening many places that, that are coastal because I, I don't know if you've ever heard the statistics that about 
how many people live near the coast. The vast majority of the world lives close to the coast. And that's why fishing is so important. It's because not only is it providing jobs, but that's where a lot of majority of people in the world get their protein from. It's from fish. It's the lowest cost protein in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Saw that TED talk. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, it's, it's like, that's a really, it's a very real scenario Yeah, that there's a scarcity of your ability to, you care, but you can't do anything about it because you don't have the capacity or the resources right. or the mental energy to do something. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. You need to worry about your family mm-hmm. putting food on the table that night yeah. and thinking about self-actualization and what you want to see your community look like in a hundred years yeah are not the conversations that you're having when you're hungry yeah and so sometimes like when we when we're working with people in the field we might talk about a species that we know can recover quickly so they can see you know they can see the benefit over short term we may not start talking about a group or a shark and and why i want to make that distinction is because those are very long-lived the, the chance to see an increased number of sharks or an increased number, number of long-lived groupers, or we can think about rockfish, is, is 10, 20-plus years. You know, there's been research by some of some uh, academics I work with in other parts of the world where they've actually shown how long it takes a lot of these long-lived species to recover with MPAs, managed MPAs in place. So we might start talking about species that grow faster and we know can recover faster. So that people can see that. So they can see it. Yeah. So what and what are some species like that? You know, really uh, fast recovering species are like some invertebrates. You know, um, you can have lobster a little bit better, um, as well as conch. You have fast grow, growing species, species like we talk a lot about here, like forage fish, and you know sardines, anchovies, and you just kind of work your way up the species that grow faster. And we can show people how they can benefit from managing those resources. That's cool. Especially the ones, if we're talking about that relationship between the marine protected area and the community or face management. So you you work with species that you know they fish. Obviously, it's a priority to them. um, But it's also fished locally. And those species mostly exist locally. Like they're not tuna tuna and sharks that are going from different countries and then coming back and you're hoping it's making it's species that, that reside in the place they're being fished right right that makes sense that's that's very strategic it's similar to if you're um trying to lose weight trying to go on a diet you don't want to uh start exercising immediately and changing your diet 100 percent. it's about taking certain parts of certain foods like carbohydrates and sugars out of your diet Mm. first because that's doable it's like okay i can go without bread i can go without that ice cream and i'm going to replace it with beans and lentils Mm. right and then all of a sudden you're like oh my god i lost five pounds in a week and then then you see that little mini success and you Mm. felt that and you're like now i'm gonna go do a a workout three times a week and then all of a sudden you're shredded and have an eight pack but if you tried it if you tried (laughs) to do it all at once you would probably give up and fail right when and that would be too difficult if you came in and said okay you need to stop fishing shark tuna lobster and rockfish all at once they would be like screw you there's no way yeah and so what we do uh, there's always that that the easier scenario of those fast growing species but at the same time we'll do the longer lived species that that function or or live where the people are actually managing the resource so that we can say here's your short-term benefits here's potential mid-term here's potential long-term benefits and there's always lots of management scenarios 
and we have them develop those management scenarios and then choose the management scenario based on what their economic, their cultural, what their biological goals are as a community. And that community could be one little village. It could be an entire bay of villages. It depends what's, what scale we're operating in. But once we try to do a management in place where they see some results, but then they there there's the promise of longer term results based on the potential for short term results because you don't want to change management every five years because you want to implement a system where they stick with it and they maintain it as for long term because you're not going to be there holding hands yeah you, you, they're the they're 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 the stewards now we're no we're no longer giving some ideas or some suggestions or just knowledge a lot of times we just pass along knowledge that we know. We're no longer going to be there holding their hand, passing on knowledge. They're the ones that are doing it. Wow. Wild world. I I knew such a small amount of about this world. Um, anything else that you want to talk about? Oh, my goodness. Only that uh, understanding. Fishing is awesome. I, I fish myself. So I don't want to talk about saying that fishing is bad, but understanding what's coming out of the water is 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 really important and the more people that can really take action to understand where their fish is coming from even though it may take one more step than when they're in the restaurant they may carry around a little card that tells them what fish is healthy they might actually ask the you know the restaurant where did you get your fish and learning what fish flesh looks like is even another fish another step to say hey is that really a rock fish or there's lots of different names for, for fish. So people can actually look at the flesh and say, oh, you know what? I, I'm pretty sure that's not halibut. And, and so then you're pushing back on, on who's giving you the product. Like these are just little steps that people can take where they're really part of the solution and saying, you know what? You're selling me something that's that's not on the menu. Right. And a lot of horrible situations can occur because those questions aren't asked. Mm -hmm. And that's how you look around one day and you say, how, how did we get here? And it's just because not enough customers were asking those simple questions. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Or maybe only eat at restaurants that actually say that they're part of, you know, a larger process of, of supporting sustainable use of resources, whether it's, it's fish as well as other stuff. Maybe they only use local ingredients, local yeah. fish. I have a solution. I'm just going to start drawing eyebrows on fish so that people start caring about them. Like they care about lions and rhinoceros. Exactly. And or, or maybe just make them furrier because people care, really care about otters. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to patch some little fur on them, make them cute. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Um, yeah, so our webpage is edf.org, and I'm part of the Oceans program, which there is a link directly on the main page. We have blogs. We have resources. More specifically, I'm part of what we call the Fishery Solutions Center, which is a consortium of people that are social scientists, economists, uh, food supply chain experts, and scientists like myself that think about this 24-7 because we all just really care about it. So the Fishery Solutions Center um, is, webpage is directly linked from the EDS page. And that's the easiest way. Beautiful. Thank you for stopping by. My pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in, my friends. Hey, we're doing a newsletter now. Stop by my website, kyle.surf, if you want to be the first to receive new videos, new podcasts. Check it out. Not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf. It's simple. It's the 21st century, guys. We can do all kinds of ways that, to end URLs. 
it's 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 magic really i had no idea that existed in, until just recently when my techie geeky housemate was like dude get kyle.surf you'll be such a gangster people will think you're so cool i'm like dude so many people think i'm cool now that i have kyle.surf so go over there check it out uh all of my videos are up there as well all in one beautiful place now i'm very proud of the website And until next time, get out in the water and enjoy your day. See ya.